Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 52, Taurus Myhand. Will the jury system survive the Peña-Rodriguez exception to Rule 606B? Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Taurus Myhand, a law student at the University of Alabama School of Law. Our podcast today features Taurus's new paper, Will the Jury System Survive the Peña-Rodriguez Exception to Rule 606B? As its title suggests, Taurus's paper focuses on the Supreme Court's recent decision in Peña-Rodriguez v. Colorado, which held that Federal Rule of Evidence 606B does not forbid a juror from testifying that racial animus infected the deliberation room. Despite its noble aims, Taurus sees the Peña-Rodriguez decision as simultaneously going too far, yet not far enough. That is... Taurus argues that the Supreme Court's actual holding is, quote, more damaging to free debate than curative of racial discrimination. But he also insists that the court missed a prime opportunity to address a more insidious prejudicial influence in the courtroom, implicit bias. My conversation with Taurus today will unpack each of these claims. Tracking his article, our discussion begins with an exploration of the historical origins of the no impeachment rule, before we focus in particular on Taurus's arguments that Peña Rodriguez will ultimately prove detrimental to the continued viability of the jury system. Taurus, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, I've really been looking forward to discussing your paper on the podcast because it engages with a fascinating question. Can the institution of the jury survive in the modern era? And to set the stage for this question, your paper begins by taking a historical look at a major legitimating component of jury decision-making, the no impeachment rule. Tell us more about the no impeachment rule and its origins. Absolutely. The no impeachment rule was developed in England generally around 1785. The idea that a juror cannot undermine or impeach their own verdict. They can't provide testimony to undermine their own verdict. And in those early English cases, especially in Vice de Delaval, Lord Mansfield had to deal with the issue of jurors being accused of coming to the verdict by literally casting lot. And so jurors were not allowed to provide affidavits. Lord Mansfield said the court can't even receive such an affidavit from the jury because it would be impeaching their own verdict. We all now know that the no impeachment rule, like so many other legal doctrines, eventually crossed the Atlantic and found a home here in our own juridical system. How did that transatlantic journey play out? The Supreme Court in a couple of early cases, starting with McDonald v. Pless, adopted the no impeachment rule, even though it had been generally followed. It was officially recognized and McDonald v. Pless, the jurors had returned a verdict that was much larger than what some of the other jurors were expecting. Some of the jurors protested, but the trial court did not allow any testimony 
because ultimately they were not competent to testify under the no impeachment rule. The Supreme Court affirmed the trial court's decision. That same rule continued in the Tanner case where jurors were allegedly drinking alcohol, drug. But again, when the influences on the jury are internal and it's about things that are happening subjectively, the court said we're not going to allow jurors to testify to impeach their own verdict. As long as the influencers are not external, it's going to be okay. Most of our listeners will likely be familiar with the no impeachment rules modern form as Federal Rule of Evidence 606B. How did Rule 606 come to be codified, and what were its major exceptions prior to the Peña-Rodriguez decision? Well, 606B was, of course, there's a wrestle with it among the Senate version and the House version. There were those in the House that wanted a more liberal rule as it related to no impeachment, but ultimately the Senate version as adopted in 1975 after a seven-year drafting committee process. It was ultimately the Senate version that was adopted that rejected the idea that jurors could provide testimony that would undermine their own verdict. And what were its key exceptions, Taras, before the Peña-Rodriguez decision? Before Peña-Rodriguez, the key exceptions were, first of all, as I mentioned briefly a moment ago, external influences. Most of us would remember the movie 12 Angry Men and the, the point where one of the jurors brings out the knife and stabs it into the table, the same style knife that was supposed to have been so unique that it had to have been that person, you know, that's going to be an external influence. This is something that's been brought from outside of the deliberation room, and it's an external influence, and that is one of the things Rule 606B has provided an exception for to the no impeachment rule. So if a juror did bring something external into the deliberation room, a juror would be allowed to provide testimony to that effect. Another exception would be a mistake on the verdict form. You know, jurors intended to render a verdict of not guilty, for example, and on the verdict form, the box for guilty was checked. That would clearly be a mistake on the verdict form and not the undermining of the the jury's verdict, so to speak. The others would be external influences such as communications with an outside party. If one of the attorneys, for example, improperly contacted uh, one of the jurors, those types of external influences, there are exceptions created for those. And generally, those exceptions as codified in 606B were drawn out of the early Supreme Court cases. Great. So now that we've set the stage by exploring Rule 606B and its historical origins, I want to turn to why it is that you find the Peña-Rodriguez decision to be so disruptive. First, what exactly was at issue in Peña-Rodriguez? Peña-Rodriguez was a gentleman who was working at a racetrack. There was 
a 2007 incident where two teenage sisters were sexually assaulted. Both of the girls identified the person as being an employee of the facility where Pena Rodriguez worked, and they separately identified Pena Rodriguez as the person who assaulted them. One of the jurors during the trial, or actually during the deliberations, made a comment that Pena Rodriguez, because of his Mexican descent, that, you know, this was just something that they did, that, you know, Mexican men had a bravado that caused them to believe that they could do whatever they wanted to with women. And this is just kind of what they do. The juror, same juror also made a comment that one of the witnesses that uh, Pena Rodriguez had on his behalf was an illegal, even though he was clearly an American citizen. Those type of comments that clearly express anti-Hispanic bias toward Pena Rodriguez, at least during the deliberations, possibly before that point. And how did the Supreme Court rule in the case? Well, the trial court originally had excluded any mention or any testimony from the jurors based on the new impeachment rule in Colorado. Rule 606B is more or less identical to the federal rule, so it was held to exclude the jurors' testimony. Appellate courts in Colorado affirmed that decision. Supreme Court, though, came with a different result. The Supreme Court decided that where there's a clear statement that indicates the juror relied on racial stereotypes or racial animus to convict a criminal defendant that the Sixth Amendment requires an exception to Rule 606B. One of the things that I really like about your paper, Taurus, is that you don't shy away from engaging with the issue at the core of the Peña-Rodriguez decision. The tension between the need to shield jury deliberations from public scrutiny and the imperative that all defendants receive a fair trial free of racial animus. And in your paper, you argue that the Supreme Court navigated this tension poorly, as you see the Peña-Rodriguez decision as, quote, more damaging to free debate than curative of racial discrimination. Why is that? Well, the Peña-Rodriguez decision is clearly the court's effort to address something that's very harmful to the American system of justice. Unfortunately, you can't cure bias, implicit bias, especially simply by allowing exceptions to Rule 606B. This is something that goes to the root of many problems in our system of justice and other areas of our country. And it's something that we can't help but acknowledge is at at least on the surface of much of what we deal with. Unfortunately, the court undermines a very important rule that undergirds the basis of our jury system. Our jury system is based on ordinary people being able to discuss and talk about the facts of a case and make a decision on what the verdict should be. Ordinary people who bring with them their biases, ordinary people who bring with them all of their baggage, but yet at the end of the day, these are the people that make up our communities. And you have to deal with those issues. They will always be with us. And even more so, 
whether the juror had made those statements openly as he did in the jury room or whether he had kept them to himself, his verdict, his vote for the verdict would have been the same. It does not change the outcome one bit, uh, simply because now uh, the statement has been made openly. And there's no evidence to suggest that somehow his open statements changed the minds of other people in the jury room. And so there is a much bigger problem that needs to be addressed, but that's certainly not the place to do it. And the court is certainly not the branch to deal with that problem. That is much better dealt with uh, in the legislature. You also see other problems in Peña Rodriguez. For example, you insist that Peña Rodriguez's exception to Rule 606B raises several unanswered questions that might undercut or undermine the legitimacy of jury decision-making. What are a few of those unanswered questions? Well, the very first one, how racially biased does the statement have to be? The idea of saying that where the statement shows clear signs of racial animus, that is going to mean different things to different people. And just like any reasonableness test or reasonable person concept, it's going to be an idea that it's that much harder to draw a bright line on what actually triggers the exception. Another question that's raised is, is the holding going to apply to other types of bias? I understand the court went through a great deal of effort to limit the ruling to this particular type of situation. But what about gender? What about religion? Is it going to be limited in the future just to racial animus? And although I disagree with the court's holding that there should be a racial animus exception, I certainly believe that if you include race, you must also consider gender and other types of biases as well, because they are just as harmful. And then, of course, is the ruling going to apply to civil cases? Uh, because, of course, the court in Peña Rodriguez is dealing with a criminal defendant. But ultimately, you know, what happens to the same type of situations in civil cases? Now, you mentioned earlier that the Supreme Court's failure to acknowledge implicit racial bias was conspicuous in the Peña Rodriguez decision. How does implicit bias infect the courtroom, and what should the court or another institutional actor do to address it? Implicit bias is, of course, something that every institution is going to wrestle with, because ultimately implicit bias it affects us in ways that we may not always recognize. These are sometimes understandings and behaviors that we have learned over years, whether or not we realize that we've learned those things. And so these types of biases that create assumptions for us, such as with the juror and Pena Rodriguez, the assumption that because the witness was of Hispanic descent, that somehow he was an illegal immigrant. Those assumptions are driven by implicit biases that are, are sometimes not even recognized by those who hold them. But we all, to some degree, wrestle with the issue of implicit bias and in ways that we may not recognize until we're confronted with that. 
Taras, do you think there needs to be some sort of institutional response to try to minimize or mitigate the effect of implicit bias? I think issues such as implicit bias has to be addressed head on, starting with all of the actors in the justice system. And that's basically one of my other issues with the Pena Rodriguez case. In Vordar, the attorney representing Pena Rodriguez never poses questions such as, will his heritage or will his ethnicity affect your decision? Never ask any questions about, you know, race or ethnicity or national origin or whether or not they would affect their verdict. Those things should have been confronted from the very beginning. We are in a time where racial and ethnic tensions have been extremely prevalent and at the forefront of much of what we do. And the idea that an attorney would ignore and not even ask those questions really borders on malpractice. Those types of issues should be addressed from the bench. They should be addressed uh, from the attorney. By setting the tone and setting the example, judges and attorneys are able to demonstrate to jurors that we need to think about whether or not we are making decisions based on assumptions, based on biases, based on things that are really inappropriate for us to be basing decisions on. Final question, Taurus. What's next for the literature? What type of paper could shed additional insight on this issue? I've continued uh, wrestling with the issue of implicit bias, not so much continuing with the jury system for now, but right now I am working on the news media's influence on the public as it relates to the reasonable person standard and Fourth Amendment seizure cases. And ultimately, implicit bias plays a major part in every portion of our system of justice. And it's an issue that I'm serious about and will continue to wrestle with in other areas of the law. Well, Taurus, thanks for coming on the show. It's really been great having you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Taurus's paper offers us a wonderful opportunity to consider the deeper implications of the Peña-Rodriguez decision, implications that cut to the core of how our justice system legitimates its adjudications of criminal guilt. Lying beneath the surface of Peña-Rodriguez's debates over originalism and purposivism, rules and standards, is a shared recognition by each of the opinions that the longevity of our adjudicatory system rests on its perceived authority, that is, its perception as a legitimate means of determining a defendant's guilt or innocence. Criminal adjudication, and in fact much of our juridical order, relies on the populace viewing jury verdicts as worthy of deference and acceptance, even in the face of substantive disagreements about a particular verdict in a given case. For centuries, the no-impeachment rule, which is of course now enshrined in Rule 606b, has been a key means of preserving the legitimacy of those jury verdicts. In the more direct words of George Fisher, it has perpetuated, quote, our systemic faith in the collective wisdom of the common man by concealing rather than excluding mistakes. But history also demonstrates that legitimating elements driving criminal adjudication are not eternal. Indeed, the last millennium is marked by a number of inflection points, when perceptions as to what constitutes an acceptable means of determining a defendant's guilt or innocence underwent radical evolution. 
For instance, as John Langbein has chronicled, the earliest juries, which were of course self-informing, acting as investigator, prosecutor, and adjudicator, only emerged after the demise of the medieval ordeal as a legitimate means of dispute resolution. As the public confidence in one adjudicatory procedure waned, another emerged to take its place. And this evolution has continued until today. The early self-informing jury eventually gave way to the modern uninformed jury, legitimated not by its pre-existing knowledge of events in question, but simply its ability to draw on the perspective of the common man. The oath initially ensured witness veracity, but the passage of time saw cross-examination emerge as the, quote, greatest legal engine ever invented for the discovery of truth. As the years marched on, the witness box, too, emerged as the central focal point, indeed the fixation at trial. Stated simply, then, history demonstrates that adjudicatory legitimacy is dynamic, not static. A procedure which serves one generation well, say the ordeal, might be seen as entirely insufficient by the next. And within this historical context, the Peña-Rodriguez decision takes on added significance. Is the decision simply a narrow carve-out, recognition by the majority that, quote, racial bias in the justice system must be addressed? Or, more broadly, does it represent yet another inflection point in history, a critical juncture spurred on by the waning legitimacy of black box adjudications given increased suspicions about jury decision-making methodology? Perhaps the answer to this question rests in the literature detailing modern notions of legitimacy. In a series of recent empirical studies, Tom Tyler has extensively chronicled the relationship between procedural fairness and legitimacy, finding that in today's world, people support the authority of adjudication, quote, if they respect it as the decision of an institution that is generally impartial, just, and competent. That is, the key modern legitimator of adjudication is not any particular substantive outcome, but instead is procedural fairness in the way that the decision-makers adjudicate guilt. But of course, for procedural fairness to serve as the primary legitimator of modern adjudication, there is an essential predicate need for transparency. Parties must be able to see how decision-makers reached a decision if they are to be reassured that the tribunal was indeed impartial, just, and competent. Despite this need, though, Rule 606B's No Impeachment Rule seeks out adjudicatory legitimacy in a different source. Almost 100 years ago, Edson Sunderland, of course one of the fathers of the federal rules of civil procedure, wrote that the jury's inscrutability, its black-box decision-making, simply serves as, quote, the great procedural opiate, which draws the curtain upon human errors and soothes us in the assurance that we have obtained the unobtainable. It covers up all the shortcomings which frail human nature is unable to eliminate from the trial of a case. In some, then, we find ourselves at a crossroads. Modern notions of legitimacy are pegged to the ability of parties to see that their case was fairly adjudicated. Yet the no impeachment rule, as it has done for centuries, seeks legitimacy via the black box. Something certainly has got to give, and perhaps Peña Rodriguez was the first step towards the next evolution of criminal adjudication. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program. 
as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Excited Utterance is produced by Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parkeranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you will join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>